Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Um, I'm very delighted to have my lovely colleague Cash with me again. Hi, Cash. How are you? Hey, Paul. How's it going? Good. Um, we're all ready for the next episode of Uptime Punks. And this time we're going to the whoop whoop with the rules. And no, this is not a hip hop podcast. <laughs> we're going down to going all the way to Australia. And um, along the way, we're picking up Singapore, an old colleague of ours. Um, Cash, what made you, I mean, you, you're the guy who's in charge of Asia over there. I mean, you said, well, next time I'm not going to bring you one person. I'm going to bring you two people. Um, what made you bring these two? Yeah, it's interesting. Thank you, Paul. So I brought along two interesting guests from the data center sector in Asia Pacific. The topic is bridging the digital divide, but I've decided that we will attempt to bridge the generational divide between our two guests today. So firstly, a man that needs no introduction to you, Paul, uh, James Murphy, who is the former event director of Data Center World Asia and the newly appointed sales director of one of the most hottest, exciting organizations in this space called Space DC. Uh, who launched their new data center campus in Jakarta this week uh, called Jack2. So that's my first guest. And then alongside James, we have Chris Thor, who is the CEO of leading edge data centers in Australia, who are deploying edge data centers all across the east coast of Australia. And I love this guy. Uh, he talks about smart regional towns. You'll hear a lot of people talk about bridging the digital divide and rural connectivity. But the technology they're deploying is key to creating more livable regional centers and leading edge data center is absolutely important part of solving that puzzle. So we're gonna hear from both executives, how they are bridging the digital divide in Asia Pacific, whilst we hopefully bridge the generational divide between our two guests. Uh, because one had a banana phone and the other one had a Nokia, but it gets even better. We have banned the discussions about rugby because we said we can't get into rugby. We're only going to speak very professional about the digital divides. But we're going to let you guys be the judge and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, a wonderful good afternoon, a wonderful good evening, wherever you are in the world. Um, today is not just um, an Asia edition, it's actually a global edition. Um, we've got somebody here from Australia, which is Chris Torpy. Hi, Chris, how are you? I'm good, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for having us along today. Yeah, and then I got, of course, my wonderful co-host and colleague, Cash, with me. And then we thought we'd bring up bring back somebody who just left us recently and that's um our lovely colleague james murphy how are you james very well paul cheers for having me on uh, this episode yeah when i asked cash who will be one of the first people he wants to bring he said i need to bring james back because i miss him too much <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the reason why we got you back here james um so just to get fired up and get started um just so that everybody knows so james basically works for space dc um he's the new sales director over there he's looking after the um well james maybe you can say a little bit more what you do now 
Yeah, sure. Th- th- thanks for the intro, Paul. So, yeah, I've, I've just recently joined Space DC, DC where I'm, I'm the sales director. And then primarily, I'll be looking after our US and European-based clients. So that will kind of be facilitating their journey uh, into data centers in primarily Southeast Asia. But as we expand several other footprints, we'll be going to um, some of the other markets within the APAC region. So, yeah, primarily my job will be to help um, North American European clients find space in world-class facilities. Oh, great. Sounds like, so it sounds like a lot of fun, but also probably a lot of jet lag. But, um, yeah. Well, well not, not, not yet. Not yet because of COVID. And generally dealing with the West Coast of the States where I can... Um, I can make them stay up late while I, I take a nice nine o'clock call in the morning. So not not too bad yet, but uh, as COVID as we pass COVID, I'm sure there'll be a lot of jet lag in the future. Yeah. And then and then we got Chris with us. And Chris is the CEO and founder of Leading Edge Data Center. Data well, I need to get the pronunciation correct. It's data center. Is it? Well, it could be data centers, it's data centers, depends on which side of the planet you come from. <laughs> so uh, what, do you, what do you guys do out in Australia then? Um, I mean, yeah, data center is quite obvious then, and yeah, maybe you can tell us a bit more. Yeah, there's a, a unique um, infrastructure here in Australia in the sense of everything is in Sydney and everything is in Melbourne. That's where the cloud is, and there's really sort of nothing out into regional Australia. So we're building a, a network of highly connected tier three facilities um, all through New South Wales, Victoria, and through Queensland. So we've got 24 sites um, that we're dropping these facilities in, and we're you know opening up new backhaul, and we're actually sort of cross-connecting all of these sites to, to really sort of set up a, a communications hub in each regional location. So, oh, yeah, it's all... Well, getting very exciting. Our first facility actually uh, was craned onto site on Tuesday. So, a bit of a groundbreaking moment for us. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Um, we'll get back to that and talk about that in a bit. Um, okay, so now we have. Um, so, let's get started. I think you and James are two different generations, as Cash has already mentioned. Um, <laughs> so, I'm going to ask James first. James, um, well, what was your first mobile phone? My first mobile phone, so um, the first mobile phone which I myself truly owned was the, was the Nokia 3210. Um, I think that felt a mass market appeal, not only for the fact it was reliable, but for the fact it was also pretty indestructible. Um, another thing which was nice about the particular phone was, of course, you could change certainly the front, and if I'm not mistaken, also the back cover as well. So... You could have your favorite football team, your favorite musician, whatever it might be. So hours and hours of fun with that. And yeah, I kind of on the back of that success, I can't see how Apple or Huawei or Samsung have never tried to kind of replicate that. But um, yeah, Nokia 3210 was, was my first phone. And another thing famous about the phone was, of course, it had Snake. So hours and hours of entertainment playing that. Um, so probably played it with multiple 10 times more snake than I actually did making phone calls because of course never had any phone credit back then but um, it lasted me a good two three years that phone okay well I can tell you one thing you're the first one that had a Nokia so you're one from the youngest generation in terms of guests that we had uh, what about you Chris what, what was what was your first mobile device should I call it a mobile device rather than a mobile phone um, yeah my, my first mobile I'm, I'm kind of showing my age here 
um, but it was actually a banana phone, as I used to call it. But it was a, a Nokia um, 8110 or 8110. Um, the flip, it wasn't the flip, it was the slide banana sort of shape. And I thought it was really cool because uh, remember when uh, the Matrix came out, Neo had one. So uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, it, it was a really good, reliable phone. It was a, an awesome phone. I actually found it in a cupboard a couple of weeks ago, and it still had seventy percent battery life. <laughs> I mean, it's just fascinating. Then it makes you wonder what happened to Nokia then, huh? Because I mean, looking at it, they were in the market up here, and now it's like Apple, and then well, probably not even Apple anymore. It's probably Samsung, which is even further up there. Yeah, but, but yeah. I think- I think there were deer in the headlights when uh, that first iPhone got launched. Yeah, because probably people never thought it would work, same as the iPod. I mean, what? who's going to buy a device where you can put 30 songs on it and walk around? Yeah. Um, but it just shows you how um, how life changes and how, how fast technology just progresses. Um, okay, Chris, uh, w- what about your first computer? Um what was your first experience of a computer and what was your first experience with a data center? My first experience with a computer, I don't remember too much about it, but I know it had, I think it had four meg of, more four meg of RAM. And uh, it was on a dial-up connection. And I used to sit there for <laughs> half an hour just to get a screen coming down. Be waiting with anticipation. But, uh, no, but I mean, getting into data centers, I've always been in technology for over the last 30 years. Uh, I've done a lot in the uh, telephony sort of area, a lot in wireless sort of mobile. And I've been watching Edge for uh, 10 years. There's been so much talk about it. And I just saw it starting to evolve in the US. And I just saw the opportunity here in Australia. I thought the timing was uh, was about right. And it's really the uh, the demand for creating data and the demand for processing that data you, you look at you look out 10 years and you can't see any any fall in that so it's really an exponential growth so what a vertical to be in what a what an industry vertical to be in yeah that's that's true because for us we always say it's like the, the magic of the data data is just in everything i mean if it's yeah. anything with the where it's smart or whatever you call it, anything that you put on a home just has data in it, and this data has to go somewhere. Um, over to James. James, what was your first experience? Was a MacBook then? <laughs> no, so, no, so first first experience of a computer would have would have been when I was maybe three, four, maybe five. Um, watch watching my brother play our, our Commodore sixty four, which we had in the house. Um, I never got to play. I was too small. Didn't know what I was doing. But I remember him playing like classic titles like Indiana Jones and a few of the kind of the stalwarts from the, the Commodore sixty four age. Um, I remember the tapes, which I don't think I ever figured out quite how they worked and how they were able to get uh, graphics onto a screen. But I remember plugging them in. I remember the insanely long load times, and quite often, or more often than not, when you died, you'd be you'd have that load time start again and you'd be coming back to the computer in five or so minutes until the screen uh, screen got going again. So, yeah, Commodore 64 was, as a youngster, watching my older brother play was, was my first real experience of a computer. Oh, that's great. 
I mean, yeah, this is, this is, I mean, computers put a lot of memories for us. I remember like my first one, um, I think until we got it up and running took about 10, 10 hours and then it worked and then it stopped working. Um, because <laughs> the modem was already broken, but yeah. Um, James, how, how would, how would you, how would you for yourself define uptime? What is uptime to you? Because you have went through a couple of lockdowns now yourself over in Singapore. Um, do, do you do you see uptime as something which um, you discovered during lockdown? Is that for you when your Netflix is working at home, or um, what is what is uptime to you? One from a professional perspective, of course, because you will say now that you work in the data center industry that uh, it's providing your customers with continuous um, support. But um, how would you define uptime? Yeah, so I, I think I'll start with the personal insights first. So luckily being in Singapore, the question of uptime and stable connection connection isn't so much of an issue. So we're blessed from that point of view that pretty much any time you want to turn on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever it might be, we're, we're lucky in the sense that it's working and that the like it's, it's very, very rarely not. Um, but a personal experience the, the just only two days ago, in fact, of when I was kind of cursing something for, for not being um, up or online at the time was when I went to do my, my food order. So at the moment, I've got a, a very heavily pregnant wife, and she, like me, gets hungry at times, um, which, again, being in Singapore, it's, it's very easy to uh, very easy to usually alleviate this. So turn around I ask her Ruth do we want pizza do we want Indian what do we fancy today and uh, her response was take a look see what's on see what's on the food apps and we went to check the food app and the food app was down which I believe it was the first or certainly the first for a long time that that had been the case so trying to trying to um, kind of satisfy my wife's uh, appetite while she was getting very, very hangry uh, and not being able to because the app was down or the data center down. Whatever part of the, whatever piece in the puzzle was down uh, caused me quite a lot of distress. So I had to whip up one of my world-famous omelets, which wasn't quite the same as uh, our favorite pizza place. But, <laughs> but it, 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 did, it did the job. Um so yeah, that, that that's that's from my, my personal life. That's that's what uptime means to me. Um, obviously, obviously, moving to kind of the professional sense, yeah, being being a data center provider, uptime is obviously extremely important for us um, and our, our customers. So only yesterday did we actually launch our first Jakarta facility, which is which is a tier three facility. So our customers, our clients, are going to expect that kind of uptime ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time. Um, so yeah, from a professional sense, we just need to make sure that our facility is, is run in line with what our international clients expect. Um, we've got a team in place that's, that's going to kind of provide that support and that, that kind of operational resilience to ensure that, like I said, our, our international client base is getting that kind of uh, service and that kind of um, operational support. So yeah, that, that, that's what it means. Professional sense, just making sure that the facilities we, we run, no matter where in the world they are, are always online, and that's in a developed market or in some of the developing markets which we're going to be moving into. Just like I said, ensuring that there's consistency 
of operation all the time. And um, so that if we're dealing with a big US client, for example, they see no difference in how our, our data center is run in Jakarta versus what they might be used to in on a side of the States. So that's kind of how I, I define it and see it from the professional standpoint as well. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I mean, comes comes and also I'm gonna um, I think I think Chris is working is he is in the work in progress of creating more uptime for Australia. So this is where um, his his work is coming in and his vision. I think that's why you started your business, right? Because you want to give Australia the uptime that they don't have. Yeah, that- it's we say uptime, but it's also having the connectivity. Uh, but I've spent a lot of time. In regional Australia, I was, I was uh, in regional New South Wales running a roadshow from the whole of last week. And we were running around. We had a 5G handset. We had a 4G handset. We were just doing speed tests as we went around each location. And, you know, literally we'd sort of wake up in a, a new city or a new regional city every morning. So I know what the Rolling Stones feel like now, sort of waking up in a new city, playing a gig, and then sort of off to the next one. But... Um, no, just a bit, to being serious, though, it's some of the connectivity that we saw in some locations. You couldn't even download images on like a news.com.au site um, on your mobile. It was that bad. I couldn't even run speed test in some of those locations. Um, but they're all used to it. It's Regional Australia doesn't really know any different. So, you know, we talk about the, the digital divide, but with COVID, you know, the, all the metro locations have accelerated, but regional still where it was um, hasn't been able to to move ahead. So the problem is is getting worse by the day. So it's you know it's, it really sort of comes down to the core of what we're developing and building the infrastructure for regional Australia. So that that's what I that's what I call sort of uptime or where I think of uptime. So so is that uptime to you, or uh, what, what's your definition of uptime then? Um, I mean, I mean, from a professional sense, obviously, from from an industry sense, our first, you know, our facilities are um, tier three, designed and constructed. Um, so that is the uptime um, level or standard that we're operating to. Um, but it's really just ensuring that we get the connectivity, strong connectivity, up and running, and um, it doesn't fail. So we're we're also bringing in uh, a piece of uh, technology as well to optimize that network and constantly monitor that network um, sort of with an AI engine um, to ensure that we don't get suddenly a game release that just clogs up the whole network. Um, we can ensure uptime for all of our clients. Okay, great. Um, have, you, have you discovered for yourself somehow some sort of... Um, COVID gadget. Um, I I think in Australia you guys didn't have too many lockdowns, um, not like over us here in Europe or especially myself in UK. Um, feeling like we're going in the tenth one physically, but um, yeah. Because for me it was the smart bulb, so I can change my lights now with my mobile phone at home. But um, I uh, I uh, d- we did actually have a lockdown for a period of time. Um, we were allowed to escape for recreational activities. So I'm a mad sailor, so I used to escape to the boat for um, sailing, which is a, an activity. But I've got a gadget on there, which uh, I love. It's basically a remote control, so I can start to actually sail the boat with a remote. 
and it's sort of the challenge of actually getting it or navigating that through. So that's one of my favourite favourite gadgets. Okay. Um, what about you, James? Also remote control, or is it more like the um, the the microwave now to warm up the food <laughs> for the hungry wife? <laughs> no, so uh, during a circuit breaker is what it was described, what it was called in uh, in Singapore. So they avoided the with the term lockdown. I think maybe negative connotations. So we had a circuit breaker here, which um, I think at its most severe was about eight weeks long. Um, so I actually found kind of solace in uh, cycling so I it was kind of strange coincidence how it happened so a friend of mine was was moving from Singapore to Dubai and she went to Thailand to do a bit of aid work got stuck there and um, she had a beautiful bike just locked away thankfully because I'm a bit of bit of a short arse and the bike actually size-wise was perfect for me so I was uh, I got the bike off a friend and was able to go for what I would consider long which I think anyone who actually cycles properly would, would kind of consider a very short cycle um yeah but I was getting out doing kind of 40 50k every every couple of days sometimes every day um uh, eventually the day came where I had to hand back the bike but I kind of got enough enjoyment out of it that I decided to invest in myself so um, from kind of not really ever cycling or not certainly not cycling since I was about 14, 15. Um, I've kind of gone to cycling pretty much every day now, including into work. So, um, yeah, I have to say the cycling and, and the, the nice bike that I got the loan of was, was my kind of lockdown discovery. I, I didn't even know that you started cycling. So what kind of a bike did you get? <laughs> I got myself, I got a Trek uh, checkpoint. Ah, okay. I got a track hanging on my wall behind me as well. That's a track as well. But that's great. Yeah, cycling. I mean, yeah, it's the beauty about cycling. Um, do, do you guys have something? You guys probably have Strava, but do you use something called Komoot as well out in Singapore? I know. I know some people do use it, but uh, that's, that's too advanced for me at this stage. I'm, I'm taking baby steps. All right. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So. Um, I mean, James, you started already a little bit. You were talking about how you guys opened your new facility in Jakarta, which is um, when I checked today in the morning because I did a bit of my research. Um, actually, was the first thing that popped up, which was um, over from the US, was that the seventh biggest economy in Asia is Indonesia, which means then... Um, is this the reason why you guys opened the data center over there just recently? I believe yesterday. Um, yeah, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about it because, um, if I understood correctly, you guys are trying to provide in Asia the service to your clients coming out of Europe and the US. Well, no, so yeah, let me just give you a bit of background into the Southeast Asia market. That's kind of the area I know best. So, Southeast Asia is dominated by Singapore in terms of data center um, supply and I suppose megawattage. So for example, just to give you a bit of context, Singapore population of seven or so million, it's got about 400 or so megawatts. Um, and this generally, this, this, this covers kind of the requirements for what Southeast Asia is generally described as ASEAN. So 10 ASEAN, there's 10 countries in ASEAN, it's basically Southeast Asia. So Singapore, for a relatively small 
country has got a huge amount of data center capacity. Um, Indonesia, to give you a bit of context, 260, 270-odd million people has got, depending which, which reports you read and from who and how it's defined, but it's got less than 100 megawatts of IT load. Um, likewise, somewhere like the Philippines, which again has a very high population, around eight or so million, or even greater now, um, again, even less than this, less than 50 megawatts of IT load. So the Southeast Asia context is very, it's, it's kind of a strange one, especially for listeners from uh, the US or Europe, where it's dominated by a relatively small country with a, with a relatively small population. Um, and what's actually happened is that the, the Singaporean government, in line with kind of the, the Paris Accord, has decided, okay, we need to cut carbon emissions, data centers, rightly or wrongly, are perceived to be um, big emitters of carbon. So they've actually put a temp- temporary ban on the construction of new, new facilities in, in, in Singapore itself. So it's kind of created a perfect storm where these the emerging markets of Philippines, of, of Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, all these different countries who are trying to obviously um, they're trying to develop their IT infrastructure and at the same time the leading player is, is kind of putting a halt to, to activity in their own country. So all of these countries have got massive populations. Generally, the demographics are very favorable in terms of young populations and massive uptake in kind of mobile technologies and internet usage generally. And so we, we had actually identified Jakarta as, as, a, as a key market before the moratorium was placed on, on the development of Singapore's in, in in Singapore because of these favorable dem- demographics. Um, so it's, it's created a perfect storm. In Indonesia, there's going to be a huge amount of um, data center capacity coming online because of these demographics, because of what's happening in Singapore. And as the economy develops more, the demand for obviously internet services across all different areas, e-commerce, gaming, um, business requirements, is growing massively. So Jakarta was a natural fit. And a lot of these markets, again, there's very few organizations which are going there and building to international standards. So that that's where we saw our niche and our place in the market. So we want to, like I said, we want to go into these markets in um, Southeast Asia, which currently are, are underserved, especially when it comes to the data centers being built to international standards, and then link them with the what we, what we call in Asia, tier one cities. So generally when people talk about tier one cities in, in APAC, they're talking about Tokyo, they're talking about um, Sydney, Melbourne, Singapore, um, those kind of key markets. So yeah, we're trying to provide a platform where countries like, or cities like Jakarta, like Ho Chi Minh City, like uh, Manila, have got world-class infrastructure that's again being linked up to the key well, well, as we described, material cities across um, Asia. Okay. Wow. Just to follow um, on with what James said there, I mean, from what we understand in Sydney, there is 1.2 gig currently under construction in pre-DA or design construct. We, we're guessing... But that's what we think the number is on top of the existing capacity. So it just highlights there with Jakarta. Um, it's just 
the the void, as in Sydney's just gone absolutely crazy. Um, there's football fields and football fields of servers being created. So this means the data center market is booming out in uh, Australia and in Asia. Is that what you guys would oh, say? It's definitely been booming in Sydney. It's just, um, you know, it's really driven by the, the top three clients, isn't it? AWS, um, Google and uh, Microsoft Azure. Oh. Um, I, I wanted to ask James one thing, um, because we're going to get with Chris into it, which is the digital divide. Um, don't you see in Asia that there's also a massive digital divide in terms of the population and everything? Because, yes, the demand is there for cloud services and all these things, but um, how many people can actually get use out of it? Yes, yeah, so, um, I think when, when we talk about the uh, digital the digital divide in a Southeast Asia context, it, it's a lot different to how Chris was, would probably describe it in an Australian yeah. context. However, however there, are, there are some similarities. So, for example, um, Singapore is, is, is rightly described as one of the most connected uh, cities in the world, world-class IT infrastructure, um, leading country in terms of pretty much any metric around this but if you look at our neighboring countries, Malaysia, uh, for example, um, li literally on, on Singapore's doorstep, if you kind of go outside some of the major hubs, again, internet quality and internet access becomes an issue. Um, likewise, if, if you kind of travel too far from any of the, the major economic centers in, in Southeast Asia, in, in some cases, you're getting no internet. Um, so... It's as all these countries develop, um, and in some cases are kind of developing from a relatively low base still, um, the demand is there. And in, in these like major metros, Ho Chi Minh, for example, like young people there, um, they, they, expect, they expect kind of, they expect fast streaming, they expect good connectivity, they, ex they expect to be able to watch, watch Netflix and, and do the kind of things which coming from where we're from we would all be used to and um, it's just these countries are often geographically they're quite large in, in a lot of cases uh, and rural infrastructure is, is just not in place just just to the kind of the development stage where the, these countries are at so yeah like we, in on, on one sense we've got Singapore one of the most advanced economies and the most advanced um, countries from an IT perspective anywhere in the world um, and then right on our doorstep, we've got some countries with some pretty poor infrastructure and pretty poor connectivity and things like that. So in an APAC, in an ASEAN context, that's kind of the way it, it's looked at. And that's kind of what we would describe as, as the digital divide. But um, I know Chris, Chris, Australian examples are, are different, but at the same time, certainly a, a digital divide. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, Chris, um, let's let's get into it. Um, I, like I said, I already practice my slang. So um, you're trying to take care of the digital divide in the whoop whoop while you're dealing with the rose. While, while you're dealing with the rose, is that how you say it? Yeah, no, sorry. That's um, <laughs> how you say. Um, no, because for me, I mean, um, Australia is a massive continent um you have a lot of um, bushland wildland um and of course you need to connect to people and it's it's maybe not on everybody's radar to be honest especially over in europe and the us um the first thing 
will not come to your mind, Australia, because you think of the big cities like Sydney, like you're saying, is booming. Um, but there's probably more to Sydney. Um, so, yeah, maybe you can give us your insight on it. Like, um, because from what I understood, it inspired you to start um, the business which you're in now. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, you know, regional Australia is actually about is about sixty seven percent of the GDP of Australia. Now, obviously, a lot of that is mining, natural resources, um, agriculture, sort of manufacturing. Um, but a lot of these industries or a lot of these uh, companies struggle with connectivity because as soon as you as soon as you leave Sydney or leave Melbourne. And you drive over the Great Dividing Range, you get out into these regional locations, the choice of connectivity really dries up. There's not much choice. The cost of that connectivity has gone up significantly, and the quality of that connectivity is nowhere near as good. The reliability isn't there that you find in metropolitan locations. So, you know, we're working with all of the major carriers. We're working very closely with MBN. Um, the access network or the national broadband network, which is really an access network. Um, and we've also enlisted um, Cisco as well. So Cisco are on board as, as our technology partner to empower this network. So it's a, it's a big project, but it's very, um, very achievable. We're already starting to prove that. We've got some of our network up and running. Um, so we're really sort of trying to bring that parity model to these regional locations. Um, as in parity pricing, but also quality of service. So, you know, it will be, you know, the bridging that digital divide. I, I mentioned COVID before. Um, for us, it's just shone a massive spotlight on regional Australia and really kind of highlighted that the infrastructure is very substandard. So we've got a lot of focus, government focus, both sort of federal and state. Everyone's aware of it. Um so yeah, it's it's a it's a, a really interesting challenge. It's very exciting, but we're already we're already starting to see those sort of early results. Um, uh, how do you measure these results? Um, do you see more like, um, I mean, okay, a bit of uh, let's get into digital divide. Digital divide. There's different versions of it. It's just that not everybody's getting the way I see it. Um, comes back to everybody defining uptime themselves as well. Digital divide for me is that you're not giving the equal opportunity to every citizen, let's say, of a country or of a continent. Um, then, okay, it comes gender equality, then there comes racism in it. I mean, this it goes into so many subcategories. Yeah. But looking at it, um, I think the most important thing is probably that um, um, helping with education probably because um, – now, when you look at COVID, people being in lockdown, um, a lot of kids have to school from home. Yep. Um, so, and you were telling us also a little bit earlier that um, when you guys were doing your roadshows and doing some tests and seeing the speed test at some areas, uh, do, do, do you think this is, um, not to get too political, do you think this is a, a failure of the government or this is more a failure of the people that there's a digital divide in um, a massive country like Australia? <laughs> Without being too controversial, because um, I have to live here, um, <laughs> uh, I believe it's an issue that should have been addressed a long time ago. Absolutely, I think there should should have been more uh, government aligned support 
with private the private sector, with the private telco sector, to ensure that there was a decent infrastructure in place. I mean, obviously, the, the, the big beneficiaries um, with what we're doing are health. Uh, there are so many different health clusters all through regional locations. And I've seen and heard absolute horror stories. Um, it's like stepping back in time 20, 30 years ago. Um, but health, education, again, horror stories. When um, we went into lockdown, kids had to go home. Um, we've got one whole school, about 90% of the school was actually being schooled by post because they didn't have connectivity. Now we School by post? How, how does that work? As in they didn't have uh, strong connectivity, so they literally were mailing in assignments. So it's, you know, we live in Australia. It's a first world country. Um, that, that it sounds more like a third world if you have to say yeah, well, this. I'm, 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 talking about, I'm talking about isolated sort of pockets here. But, you know, yeah, it's crazy, health, yeah. Health, education, even justice, uh, body cam videos, not being able to sort of be transported sort of real distances. You know, there's a there's a big case for bringing the compute out to where the data is generated, um, mm. for AI to then really sort of take over and start processing that, that data sort of on site. Agriculture as well, big beneficiary. There's some awesome ag ag tech available today and there's some awesome ag tech coming through the pipeline but if you haven't got compute power close to the farmer how are you actually going to operate that tech um, there's there's a many different use use cases that uh, are starting to be highlighted to bridge that you know that digital divide so, so, so what do you see as the biggest challenge i mean um Giving also that Australia is probably one of the harshest environments in terms yeah. of um, the heat. I mean, um, is it a hot aisle yeah. you guys are using over there? Yeah. What is yeah. It? It's, yeah, it's hot aisle containment, and then we quickly get it out. Um, but yeah, that has been a challenge. And with the design uh, with Schneider, where we're partnered with Schneider Electric to do all of our um, design construct, I mean, we basically threw a whole bunch of Lego on the table. So this is what we want. Can you build it for us and design it? Um, we have the, the actual facility can sit out in the open for 20 years, no problem. Um, we've actually created a complete second skin over the top. We've covered that in solar as well. So we stop the direct sun actually hitting the data center itself. So we create a whole airflow through there as well. So we've been, you know, we're building infrastructure here for the next sort of 40 years. Um, and it's a sort of steel construction, um, steel construction frame in four big modules, like a five mil gap down each module. The whole thing is constructed um, and then lifted off in four modules, trucked out on the back of big double B trucks, um, and then sort of assembled down to the millimeter on site. And I can say that very confidently because I sort of saw and sat through the whole process on Tuesday. So that was the first one, and it went perfectly. So, and that's what we're deploying over Australia. But they're very much built for Australian conditions. We've got to, they've got to sit there in 50, 50, you know, 50, 60-degree heat, potentially. Yeah, but that's probably something that could work in, um, let's say, places like Saudi Arabia. Yep. Oh, it's quite similar. Desert environment. Um, 
Saudi is also not too connected. I've been there many times. You would drive from one city to the other and just your mobile phone connection, everything would just be gone all of a sudden. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite interesting. Um so for you so how long did it take you until you guys came I mean, did you just wake up one day and you said, I want to connect Australia, or did you go somewhere on holiday and try to check your email, then you went, oh, come on, not again. It was, it was a bit of both, actually, to be honest. Um, I've been watching watching the edge evolution in the US, and uh, I'm in touch with all the uh, major players over there, and we have US representation. I was just watching it, watching it, and suddenly it was, yeah, the opportunities here. And plus, we we partnered with uh, one of the well, the big sort of high density power grid uh, companies here in Australia. So we're actually we're able to sort of leverage their land assets right next to a substation. We leverage their fibre assets, um, so they get you know they out of a piece of land that wouldn't be used for anything. They've got someone paying rent. They've got someone leasing their fibre, and they've got a new power customer and a decent power customer as well. So it was a, a real sort of win win. On both sides, uh, and that's where it really started to develop, and that's when we really started pushing out into regional Australia. So we're now we're now looking at sites right up into New South Wales, sort of you know, eight eight hours, nine hours drive from Sydney inland. That's a long way. It's uh, you are literally sort of middle of middle of nowhere. Um, are you getting a lot of government support in order to do it or um, not in the way you would like to see it? That is a great question, Paul. Um, <laughs> because I, I, I know from, I, I know from um, I mean, data center people normally are not the most welcome people by any government authority because it's well, like you guys take the space away, you create a lot of carbon footprint, you ruin, you ruin the image of the city, you ruin the image of this. Not at all, not at all. We actually fix fix a lot of problems we create growth we create jobs where uh, we become that enablement platform for the region and very much so and that that is that is very recognized but back to your question there no we haven't received any uh, financial support up, up to this point from, from any government entity um, we are in lots of discussions and obviously government support would help us just accelerate the whole rollout we obviously have to create a business case in each regional location, uh, which is challenging. And, you know, unless you've got a, you know, a massive army of people to spread around regional Australia, you've got to do a region by region and keep going back to that region. It's uh, it's fairly time consuming. But we're starting to get national enterprise now. We're starting to get support that will take a presence in each facility, sort of building out their network. Um, so we, we're getting there. We're getting there. And we're, we're confident we're on the right path, um, but it is uh, it's, it's it is a very big project. Uh, no, I can imagine because we had um, the discussion a couple of times um, on the podcast with some of our German guests, which was basically about edge computers and. Um, the micro data centers of each village will have their own little data center because there's so much data that you need to process. Um, and then you would just go and connect them all to a bigger data center because um, in, let's say, for example, Germany, a lot of people are going into now the Tesla cars, electric cars, self-driving cars. Yeah. And the amount of data these cars um, just produce um they cannot be facilitated with our 
normal data centers as they are sure. right now because i give you the best example um lockdown one happened i was sitting i live in central london there was no internet connection it was gone for two days yeah and this is this is this is the 21st century and you're like come on how is this even possible but i started digging a little bit deeper because yes um we work now here comes the interesting one we work on the industry not in the industry that's something i had to learn <laughs> and um yeah, then we heard that basically they just, they, they put, how can you say, they put like a limiter on everybody, what they're getting, because yeah. they just said, well, we can't facilitate these kind of volumes with people. Because what basically what happened is a lot of people would sit at home, watch Netflix while they're working on Zoom. Um, and that would completely destroy the internet connection. So that's why they turned it down over here in London. While over in Frankfurt, um, our close friends from DKIX. I don't know if DKIX is too much involved in Australia. I know they do some stuff out in Asia. So they're the biggest um, internet exchange in Europe. Um, yep. They had some of the the, the prime, um, I think even yesterday was a record day for them because everybody's watching the US elections, which are still going on. Yeah. Um, probably by the time this podcast comes out, there will still not be a result <coughs> no. of who won. Um, yeah. Last one I checked half an hour ago was um, I think it was Joe Biden who was in the lead now, but um, still some states are left. But this is um, yeah record record number of people that voted, which just shows you how beautifully that worked. But again, it was the postal vote, and um, I don't know why they still haven't found a solution to have people vote digitally. But uh, that's absolutely that would make so uh, yeah. would make so much sense. Um. I, w I want to ask James. So, James, um, coming from the events industry, uh, did you like the cloud so much that you said, well, I want to work in the cloud data center industry now? <laughs> but that's a curveball, I know, but it's just like, um, did, what, what, insp what inspired you to go into that field? Um, did, you, did you say, I, I mean, you worked in the industry for quite some time and then... Um, you got a little bit involved with, um, with um, I think it was renewable energy, and then it was like the waste, um, e-waste, and all of these things. And w what took you down the path now to um, go into the digital world? Yeah, well, uh, well, first of all, you, you said you weren't going to ask me any difficult questions, so you brought me down there. Um, well, I don't get paid for it. I do it out of passion. That's the difference. Uh, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you up in that case. No, well, like uh, just like yourself, I, I was kind of involved working with uh, kind of all different aspects of, I suppose, the cloud and data center ecosystem for yeah close to five years, and uh, I just like the personalities in it. Uh, it's an industry which is obviously going from strength to strength in terms of well, in terms of any metric you apply to it, in certain terms of its growth, in terms of the number of people employed in it, and in terms of it's important to global and regional economy so it was it's in my opinion it, it's probably an industry that the layman or the man on the street knows very little about but like data centers impact every kind of aspect of our lives these these days whether we like it or not and um when i when i try to explain to my mum what exactly i do and what, what exactly <laughs> how, how exactly data centers play a role in that i, I, I don't think she's quite got her head around it yet but um i just like to be i just like the industry i just uh from a kind of salesman point of view i thought it was now was a good time to get involved while, while um demand is 
kind of skyrocketing in no matter where in the world you are. Um, but I think the thing which attracted to me it attracted me to it the most was probably just the people, the personalities um, within the industry. So like like yourself and like what you're doing now, just, just kind of reaching out to people and connecting with people from all different works of life, really. But everyone has ultimately the same mission and trying to make people's lives better, trying to uh, engineer solutions which are going to kind of improve people's standards of living and their quality of life, all, all these different kind of things. So um, it was as, as soon as I started working in the kind of the, the data center or cloud space, pretty much straight away, I was kind of mapping in my career and, and thinking, okay, th this is an industry I want to kind of long-term pivot my my career towards. And um, yeah, I'm really thankful to Space DC for, for giving me the, that opportunity. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's like... That, um, I always say, like, I, I say that data centers are the lungs of our societies and people don't even realize it because everybody gets just in touch with the industry every day without even knowing. And James said it beautifully. I, I, I personally don't know how to explain to my father till today how, what am I actually doing? Because he's going to go, what a nonsense. But if I then explain to him, like, where do you think your Netflix that you're watching now comes from? And he's like, well, from the internet and I was like yeah where do you think the internet comes from um and this is this is where it all it all starts but I I'm very curious about one thing and this is one topic we discussed a couple of times um in our podcast I'm going to start with Chris in terms of okay so you're building your edge data centers and all of these things now but do you get enough people qualified people that can work in the industry or work on the industry do you find difficulties in finding people that want to go through the training process how does the training process work in australia um if you're let's say a young lad or a young lady listening to this podcast and you're like oh i really like this idea um i like what chris is doing over there how can i get myself involved do you, do you guys have a shortage of staff because in, in, in Germany, for example, even in, in the UK, there's a shortage of staff and it's very difficult to find people that want to work in the data center industry in terms of a technical point of view. Salesman, yeah, you will always find a good salesman like James. Um, but the guy who's actually putting everything together, is it hard for you guys to find somebody out in Australia? No, we're actually, I mean, every location where um, we go through a process and we're sort of working with the local um, IT solution businesses so we've we've got multiple skilled hands that will go through the whole induction and, and process with us and, and go through that training process so we'll have access to localized skilled hands the sites are primarily run as dark sites but we'll have someone pretty well on call um, very close to the facility at any stage um, we're running from a security perspective they're very they're highly secure um, highly secure fenced environments. We've got about 42 different cloud-based AI-based cameras um, facial, using facial rec recognition and Bluetooth technology. So really, you know, finding the skill set we need is not hasn't really been a challenge um, up until this point. But I think, you know, it's important to understand that we're, um, you know, the local enterprise or the local businesses are not going to be driving our model they may be sort of 25 30 percent of our model but it's more national enterprise wanting to get out into these regional locations 
Um, and we're, we're coming across, um, we've got two companies just in the last, just this week, that are moving big chunks of their workforce out to these regional locations. So there's very much, you know, an employee can be working from anywhere. Mentality started to come in, which is awesome. We've actually seen some ads saying, doesn't matter about your location. In Australia, um, we, we'll interview you. So obviously they need the infrastructure in place for that to work. But I think working from home is definitely here to stay. Um, to a, you know, to what level I don't know, but there's there's going to be a lot of um, distributed workforce environments. You fast forward two or three years, it's going to be a very different uh, landscape. Uh, it reminds me of a funny TV commercial I've seen in Germany um, the other night because I got myself now a satellite dish to watch uh, German television. Um, so basically, it's it um, it's from one of the travel companies one of the big ones i think it's two year i don't remember what it was but it shows this bloke he's sitting there on a table with a tie on and you see there's a little bit of wind and then all of a sudden the wind gets gets really strong and it blows away like behind him he had like basically it was like a wooden just a, a wooden background it flies off and he's sitting in maldives on the beach and then it goes <laughs> we make it possible for you to work from anywhere in the world and then this was for the travel agency you know yeah, awesome. so I, I thought it was a rather brilliant um Brilliant um, commercial, but yeah. So, so you're saying you guys don't have that problem um, with staffing. What, what about you guys, James? How how is it in Asia? Because we had Joshua on, I think, um, who's also a close friend of yours. Because uh, Cash met him through you, um, because you recommended him as the number one expert in Singapore when it comes to uh, data centers. But how, how do you see the, the market? Is there enough professionals? Is there lack of professionals? Do you guys need more? Well, uh, again, um, to kind of to borrow the phraseology from the digital divide, you can kind of almost say there's a, a bit of a talent divide as well when, when, when we talk about Southeast Asia. So what, what, what I mean by that is um, Josh is very passionate about bringing new people into the industry and I, I think there is a, a shortage of, of professionals coming into the industry in Singapore. However, um, on the flip side of that, Singapore is a very attractive place for people to live. Um, it's, it's a developed economy. So in cases where outside talent needs to be brought in, it's, it's pretty easy to do that. So if you're, if you're sitting in the UK and you get a nice job offer to come out to, to sunny Sing Singapore, it doesn't often take too much convincing um, However, in in some of the countries around the region, um, yeah, there, there there can be issues around finding people with the right experience, the right kind of um, knowledge base. We were we've, we've been very fortunate with, um, with with construction and soon to be operation of our facility in Jakarta in the sense that we were amongst the first into that market. So we've been able to put in place a, a very very solid and very very strong team. Um, which has kind of worked very well with, with our counterparts who sit here in Singapore. So if we're as lucky as we have been in Jakarta throughout uh, the other cities where we're planning on entering, we find ourselves very lucky. Um, I'm not going to name any names here, but there are other, other companies and other providers who have followed us down in Jakarta and they're, they're finding they're having huge difficulty in attracting staff from a construction point of view. Um, and then further down the line from an operational point of view, just because like we're going from a very small base 
in a country like Indonesia to the, the market being projected to be kind of in terms of megawatts eight ten times the size it is now. So of, of course there's going to be a there's going to be an issue around securing the right kind of people to work within your business. And I think I think that's probably um, probably the case in a lot of markets around around Southeast Asia because the industry is relatively in, it, in its early stages. Finding people who've got ten years of data center experience, just they just aren't there. Um, so, yeah, to kind of answer your question, there's certainly great people out there. I just think that, particularly in the emerging economies, it's it's, it's a bit more difficult. Um, and when you do find them, you need to make sure that they're um, appreciated and recognised, and that you're you're able to meet them. Because if if you do find these people who've got the experience the expertise you require, they're, they're sure they're going to be in, in strong demand. Okay. Um, uh, how, how do you see the market growing the next terms of five to ten years? Where do you see the future of cloud business, data center business in Asia? Um, so, again, that, that's interesting. Um, a lot of it kind of sits and depends on what's going to happen in Singapore. So, for a number of different reasons, Singapore is, is seen as kind of the, the safe city, if you want to call it that, the safe country in, in Southeast Asia. Singapore has got friendly relations with both the US and with China, which means that both um, cloud providers in both countries are, are, are happy setting up here. So it's kind of unusual that we've got um, all the major US and pretty much all the major Chinese cloud providers with a presence in, in, in Singapore. And going back to the fact that Singapore is a pretty small country, both in terms of landmass and in terms of population. Um, so, but in terms of the other Southeast Asia countries, so again, countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, its growth is going to be explosive um, for some of the reasons cited earlier in terms of things like um, their economies are growing very quickly, the demographics are favorable, um, they've made kind of conscious decision to kind of advance their IT infrastructure um, so for all those reasons, it's 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 they're booming markets. What's kind of an interesting almost subplot to that is the American cloud and the Chinese cloud providers coming in to serve these markets. Um, it's almost like there's going to be proxy wars going on in, in these different geographies because these guys have pretty much sewn up their domestic markets. Uh, in the case of the US cloud providers, they've, they've pretty much sewn up Europe as well. Um, so they, they see countries like Vietnam, like the Philippines, like Indonesia, uh, Thailand, they see these where the growth is coming from. So um, growth is going to be explosive. It's going to be interesting to see who kind of wins between the Chinese and the American providers. Um, I think that's, that's really interesting and one that if, if I was kind of looking in from the US or the Europe, I'd be kind of watching with a keen eye. Um, so, yeah, great growth potential in all of those markets and um, a lot of kind of interesting subplots to come on down the line as well. Great. And what about you, Chris? How do you see, what is your roadmap, your vision? You probably have a vision, which is like a vision 2030 you want to connect or... Do you, do you have like, you probably put yourself a roadmap in place where you're saying you want to connect this many people or this many places by that that amount of time. 
Do you have something like this? Yeah, oh, we've got a, How do you see yourself growing the next five to ten years? We, I mean, we've got a pretty intense roadmap over the next three years. Um, so we've got uh, 40, 41 sites, I believe, in the in the roadmap. But we're also um, we're looking very much at sort of building out in line with the the radio access network as well, like a wireless edge. So there's a whole different phase that we're working on that will be coming through sort of early in the new year um, where we're sort of really really trying to take the cloud to the edge. And it's very sort of 5G related. Um, I don't want to sort of say too much more there, but I think from a cloud perspective, the, the, the three major cloud environments in Australia have, you know, the growth has been explosive, but it's all in the major cap cities. Yes, we're in discussions. Love to take them out further into these regional locations. We're opening up cloud access at each location, direct cloud on-ramp capability, which is a game changer in itself. That's going to reduce backhaul costs for these regional businesses. I think there's going to be more interaction between the major cloud providers. I think more of that hybrid solution, especially sort of out in the regional locations out on the edge, there's going to be a, a, a more development there over the next couple of years so it's it's the cloud penetration at the moment in regional australia is pretty low it is pretty low it is literally you can go back 10 15 years you've got servers in cupboards um you've got st your storerooms being converted into a server room um and that's you know that on-premise is is prevalent throughout regional australia so this is what we're obviously out to uh, to start changing which is going to be a, a real education process we're going to go through, but uh, I'm sure we'll get there. And you want more support? And you need more support? <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So that sums it up. Um, I'm going to give over the mic to James because this we're coming to an end because um, you lovely gentlemen have to finish your day and I have to start my day, um, even though it's a very misty, cloudy, foggy morning, typical in London in the autumn. Um, so James, um, the last word goes to you and then over to Chris, um, this, the stage is yours. Uh, well, thank you, Paul. Um, yeah, no, I, I would just encourage all listeners from US, North America or, uh, Europe or wherever you might be, um, do keep an eye on what's happening in Southeast Asia. The markets are in some cases already kind of seeing the explosive growth in other cases, it's literally around the corner and when I, when I say literally around the corner I'm talking about really attractive markets in terms of, of the, demo, the favorable demographics I'm talking about Vietnam I'm talking about the Philippines um, that's almost 150 million people right there who are currently underserved so um, for anyone sitting in, in any of those markets or any of those regions um, I would say make sure you've got a strategy to, to deal with Southeast Asia um, make sure you have a good understanding of the fundamentals because if you don't kind of get on board now you're going to miss huge opportunities so um, yeah make sure you're, you're coming up with a strategy for, for this part of the world Right and over to you Chris Yeah I think um, obviously you know, what we're creating I believe here in regional Australia is um, you know we've We've pulled together, we've got Cisco on board, we've got obviously working closely with MBN, 
Um, we've got Equinix um, on board as well because uh, we don't compete with Equinix. We're very, very, um, we're very much sort of working together. We can sort of give Equinix that that extension. But what we're creating, we've got a lot of global eyes on New South Wales, Victoria, and Queensland because you've got these large distances between population centres, um, and we're building this distributed compute environment and it's a real showcase for what edge compute can be and how it can benefit benefit um, benefit the whole all, all of the region so keep a keep a close close eye on us follow us um, follow leading edge data centers on uh, LinkedIn because we've got a lot of content coming through uh, we've got a whole movie about the uh, first construction of our first site which I've just seen some of the footage which is pretty cool so we've one of the drones nearly got take, taken out by a swarm of, um, of lorikeets um, at one stage, which is a proper whoop whoop area. Oh yes, it's a whoop whoop area. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we've got some we've got some great content coming through. But it's really you know we're we're building a world class network here, so it's going to be very interesting. Very, very uh, exciting. No, Chris, we, we definitely, we're definitely going to bring you back in in a couple of months' time and then see the process you made. Um, maybe, maybe we could even bring one of the guys from um, Schneider's side. Yeah, um, absolutely. To hear their absolutely. side of the story of um, yeah. how they they supported you and the difficulties they found out there. And or maybe we bring somebody from ABB and ask them um, why they didn't have the solution that Schneider had. But um, yeah, this is we've, <laughs> this is this is for me in cash to create that conflict. Absolutely. No, Schneider, <laughs> uh, we've worked very closely with them. There's, you know, we, we've really pushed yeah. their boundaries. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, but they uh, they're, they're showcasing this globally right through their whole global entity. They're loving it. So. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so um, I want to thank you both. Thanks for your time and um, your contact details and everything will be shared um, as normal in the outro. And um, yeah, I hope to both of you stay safe. And um, the, I don't know if you guys are going to have a lot of lockdown. Uh, one question I didn't ask um, Chris actually Do you guys have a COVID app out in Australia? We do. We have a COVID app, it stays on constantly, and it's a COVID contact tracing app. New South Wales, actually it's federal, federal. Um, yeah, I think it's working really well. So, okay. Well, our numbers are. James, I don't think you guys have control. one. Huh? Uh, no, James. Um, the Singapore government would not like it if you said that. No, we, we've had a contact tracing app <laughs> from um, very early days. I think GMC shows up, James is taking yeah, one. No, no, yeah. Just to clarify, <laughs> Singapore definitely has one. Um, no, it, it's. It, they, they, they had it out very early on, and it seems to have um, seems to have helped get to the situation, help us get to the situation where we're at now, where we're uh, in the last week or so. I think it's probably under ten cases. We had a number of cases, which was zero, 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 in kind of consecutive days, which was great. So, um, yeah, no, I have to I have to tip my hat to the the Singapore authorities for for getting that one right. Well, we had twenty five thousand last night. Um, I know. I, I understand why because I, I cycled through Oxford Circus last night and I thought I was in the scene of the purge, um, <laughs> because I mean, so they basically they closed all essential shopping, and I could just hear like the purge like soundtrack in the back of my head, and people started fighting on the road with shopping bags about who's gonna get the last iPhone from them. It was absolutely madness. Like 
you couldn't get in or out of London. It was like the roads were blocked with cars and people walking in between it. And if there's a tracing app and that tracing app supposedly works, I mean, the tracing app would be going blowing up, whatever it is. But no, I mean, it's just it's just crazy. But that's that's for another time when um, because I'm working on getting the the lovely chap who developed the app for the UK government on this podcast because I have the people from who did it in Germany, and in Germany it seems to be working better than in the UK. But um, we try to get to the bottom of it. But that's a difference. Sounds very stressful there, Paul. Um, I'm just going to go for a. Yeah, it's like the purge. I'm just going to wander. It's like the purge. I'm just going to wander down the beach uh, in a few minutes and just go for a swim. So. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's literally like the purge. I'm, I'm thinking already about what kind of what kind of tools could I take with me on my cycle ride to the office in the morning so that I can protect myself while going through Hyde Park, being attacked by some. By some, I don't know, by some teenagers, but yeah, perfect. Um, thank you both and. Uh, keep a positive mind and there's uh, test negative and anyways um, it's a little bit better over there where you guys are it's a little bit warmer and a little bit sunnier but um yeah thank you very much thanks paul cheers james wow um, I mean, this was this was quite interesting. It was lovely having James back. It was lovely having Chris on the podcast. We learned a lot, um, but it's like it's fascinating how how the digital there's actually a real digital divide in this because it's like, I mean, if you just think about it, how some school kids are getting proposed their school classes. I mean, it's like. Uh, well, anyways, it was a great update, a great insight. But nevertheless, this is Asia edition, which means it's cash and cash is going to give us. So cash, um, Indonesia, Jack2 data center, which James and Space DC is opening up, which actually have opened up. Um, why is Indonesia booming so much? Because um, when I looked it up, it's like the number seven GDP in the world. Um, who would have thought that one? And why is the data center cloud industry like in such a massive boom over there yeah great great question so if you look at what's driving the need for the data centers in indonesia uh, you have an increasing number of internet and social media users there's greater connectivity across the country the demand for facilities is increasing with over 150 million indonesians expected to access the internet by 2023 and over 20 new million social media users are going to be added uh, in the next two years. The government also have a 2020 go digital vision and Industry 4.0 is also going to drive the need for more data centers. Believe it or not, they are trying to get 1 million fisher and farmers to be given online support from thousands of tech startups, along with efforts to digitize 8 million SMEs. So companies, industries, SMEs, government have really embraced industry 4.0 through digital transformation. And then we're seeing increases in productivity and efficiency. And once an organization realizes those benefits, even more will go online and require more data centers to 
achieve this. So, so that's really what's fueling, and those initiatives are projected to boost the Indonesian digital economy by over 150 billion uh, in 2025. So lots of exciting growth in the Indonesia data market in the years to come. I mean, that that if, if you just think about it, that's like a massive um, growth potential over there. So for anybody that wants to get involved, um, if you're a company in Europe and you want to get involved in the Asia market, you can ask Cash. Cash is the, I would say, the local guru, expert, you name it. And then if you're looking for your storage space and your data center solution, you go to James Murphy. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, very interesting, which seems very far for all of us. We know the water turns the other way around when it goes into the sink. Um, we know that there's kangaroos, there's wallabies. And then there's something called the whoop whoop, which is the slang word for the bush. And the ruse is the kangaroo. Um, but Australia, yeah, it's like... I mean, for us, it seems quite far away, but I mean, he was saying like Sydney is booming and then the digital divide because it's such a massive country. I mean, you have a desert in the middle. You have so many different climate zones probably on the continent. I mean, it's a continent itself. And yeah, I mean, it's what's going on in Australia? Yeah, accurately put. So Australia is one of the more mature data center service markets in Asia Pacific. However, what COVID-19 illustrated, there's a greater need for digital infrastructure to improve the connectivity, as Chris correctly stated, between the remote and rural areas. So hence you have organizations like leading edge data centers becoming absolutely more viable option uh, for Australian federal and business and even startups. So what, what we've seen in Again, Chris identified the real-world impact of COVID-19. It put a lot of pressure on end-user companies or local federal organizations to support remote working or online education. So suddenly they found themselves needing to fast-track their cloud and digitization journey, which of course will help boost the domestic data center market. So everyone from SMEs, uh, governments are increasing cloud computing. So we're seeing uh, regulations for local data security, growing investments by domestic players. And then also, if you look at the government level, I know this was talked about quite frequently by Chris, uh, the Australian government have an initiative called the Government Information Management Office, and they're leading the way in optimizing data center resources. And they've introduced something called the Australian government data center strategy 2010 to 2025 sorry 2020 to 2025 and the strategy represents a transition from using government rate data centers to third-party multi-tenanted data centers so you you can see that everyone is increasingly investing or adopting some type of acquisition strategy to expand their uh, capacity so we are going to see uh, continued growth um, and if you take a, a look at some of the organizations like equinix they acquired uh, Metronome's data center assets and provided you know, additional capacity, uh, adding scale and approximately 20,000 square meters of gross uh, co-location space to Equinix's uh, footprint in Australia. So huge, huge, huge potential despite being a very, very, very uh, mature data center market. Um, and yeah, and we would like, I think both of us, me and Cash would like to hear how other 
companies. Um, I think Chris is working with Schneider Electric. Um, the guys from Schneider Electric are good friends of ours, um, Cash. But we would also probably would like to know how our other friends out there who work in the data center industry are getting on in Australia and in Indonesia. So if you have some interesting stories you want to share with us, um, feel free to reach out to us on LinkedIn. Um, I would also advise you guys if you want to know what's going on in Asia and Pacifics and Australia, of course. Um, then you can, um, Cash is doing some wonderful things. He's doing a Friday roundups. So you guys can go to that one, subscribe, look it up. Um, gives you basically everything in five minutes, what has happened in that week. I mean, this roundups are becoming like a, like a, like a news conference. Um, they should, they should start playing like <laughs> presidential anthem when you walk on that stage, Cash. But anyways, that's a different story. <laughs> well, I think everybody's had an, enough of presidential anthems given <laughs> what we're watching unfold in the US right now. I'm not quite sure we've, we've decided who the, the winner um, is. Sh but... Should we make a prediction? Well, I saw Bind I woke up this morning and I saw Biden um, needing six was trending on Twitter. So I was presuming he was getting close to the mark, but I'm I'm going to log back in and find out what the actual outcome of that presidential race is. But back to your point, yeah, I'm the event director of Data Center World Asia, which is Asia Pacific's biggest and best attended uh, data center and cloud show based in Singapore. We've got a very, very strong uh, partner community, whether it be people like Schneider, Vertiv, Eaton across the OEM space. And of course, we're deeply entrenched with all of the major hyperscale co-location companies, whether that be Yotter Infrastructure in India, Air Trunk coming out of Australia, expanding into Japan. Space DC has got a, a tremendous amount of activities, Princeton Digital doing a load of work, work in Indonesia. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. So if you have any desire or interest to find out more about what is one of the hottest data center and cloud markets in Asia Pacific, then follow me on LinkedIn and make sure you tune into the weekly roundup for your short bite weekly dose of all things hot in Singapore's data center world Asia. Wow, couldn't have finished it better. Thank you very much, guys. And uh, stay positive and... Um... Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or LinkedIn. Take care.